When you're reporting on stories the police won't like, how concerned should you be with your personal safety? There could easily have been a scenario where officers say, look, we'll let you, we'll let you walk on this, uh, you know, as opposed to being incarcerated. But, um, you know, you go mess up that, that white guy. That's Jamie Calvin, journalist, human rights activist, and founder of one of Chicago's newest Pulitzer Prize winners, the Invisible Institute. It's just the latest in a long string of achievements in an award-winning journalism career that has, among so many other things, literally transformed Chicago's police department. I'm Charlie Myerson with Rivet360 and ChicagoPublicSquare.com, and this is Chicago Media Talks, a show in which people in Chicago media talk about Chicago media. We're recording this live on Clubhouse before turning it into a podcast. And if you're listening live, we'll be taking your comments and questions. Just tap the raise your hand icon at any time. Here's my co-host, my friend, my Rivet colleague, journalism strategist, Sheila Solomon. Jamie, welcome and congratulations to you and your staff on that big prize. Thanks, Sheila. It was it was really unexpected. We um you know, we had reason to believe that we were a finalist for the audio reporting category, but to to win in the national reporting category was a, a, just an utter shock and surprise. Um, still processing. Well, you're sharing the award with with some other newsrooms. So tell us about the stories that led to this award. Yeah. So the the award um, for national reporting is a a um, byproduct of a collaboration with um, the principally the Marshall Project and a couple of other local nonprofits looking um, at the use of police dogs essentially as weapons. Um, so I think one of the things that and it's been commented on that that makes this particular award a kind of a benchmark is you know, it was a, a national local collaboration of nonprofit journalism newsrooms, with obviously the Marshall Project being the, you know, the the big national partner. And the the other finalists in that category were the staffs of the New York Times and the staffs of the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, it's I, I wouldn't for a moment want to suggest that um, nonprofit newsrooms like ours are the are, are the future of journalism and the sense of saving journalism but i think this marks a moment of recognition that they are an integral and essential part of the emerging the emerging media landscape um so you know that's that's fascinating the other the other category in which we were a finalist was um uh, for our podcast series somebody which um, I urge uh, the audience to check out if you're if you're not aware of it, which also marks a kind of a departure in how investigative podcasts work. It's the in, investigation of um, the murder of a 22-year-old uh, young man in Chicago, and Courtney Copeland, and the host and protagonist and voice of the podcast is not me, not one of my colleagues, not an investigative journalist, but um, Courtney's mother, Shapiro Wells. And so, again, an interesting departure in, you know, a practice that's been very much part of the history of the Invisible Institute and just trying to think hard about what our relationship as journalists is to somebody else's story. So, you know, one way of putting it is in the podcast, we, we sort of center the source, but um, we don't really think of Shapiro as a source. She was a, a colleague in producing the podcast. So, and, and, you know, it, it, it's an interesting moment in, in journalism, and we're, we're proud and gratified to be, to be part of it. Back to your reporting on, on police dogs. Um, how might you summarize that for our listeners? Well, you know, that there are, um, just as a statistical matter, a shocking number of um, police dog bites, um, you know, on, uh, on suspects, on, on 
civilians. And it's an area, you know, think of the work that's been done on police shootings. Think of the work that's been done on um, use of tasers. Think of the work that's been done on, on excessive force. This is a, you know, a mode of state violence that had, had eluded um, uh, that kind of scrutiny. So, um, and, and one of our partners was the Indianapolis Star. And again, you know, as gratifying as the awards are, um, and, and, uh, and they are, and of course they're incredibly helpful in, in building an organization, building visibility, leveraging resources, they really are a byproduct. And the, the you know, the metric we care about in our work is, is impact on policy and practice. And in Indianapolis, which had a, you know, an abysmal record in terms of the, the number of, of bites of, uh, number of civilians bitten by police dogs, there was immediate change in policy, you know, in the police, in the police department, in the city council. So, you know, this is one of the things that um, characterizes our work. So we're not the Invisible Institute is not a um, media outlet in itself. And we have robust partnerships, um, you know, above all with the with the Intercept for national publication of our our, our local reporting. Um, but we're not, you know, we're not in the posture of competing for attention with, um, you know, essentially redundant content, which is the way a lot of journalism works. Everybody can, you know, competing over the same story. And so our, our focus and what I constantly, you know, raise as a criteria with colleagues is we want to be doing stories that won't get done if we don't do them. The Invisible Institute actually grew out of a really aggressive FOIA practice. So we should explain, word. you know, for that's Freedom of Information oh, sorry, Act pardon, request. Pardon that. Yeah, no, that's okay. That insider, you know, Freedom of Information Act uh, requests, and for you know over a over close to a decade, we pursued one case in which I was ultimately the plaintiff. That um, in 2014 culminated with a um, decision of the Illinois Appellate Court holding that um, documents bearing on allegations of uh, police abuse are public information in Illinois, and you know all sorts of things have have flowed from that. On behalf of journalists <laughs> everywhere, uh, thank you for that. that that's been a, a gift to to the public and to journalism. Yeah, and and what I wanted to emphasize is that we've continued. You know, we you know continue to aggressively use FOIA and look for different lines of inquiry. And so the, you know, looking at police dogs was something, you know, we were doing, and we're doing it in jurisdictions around the country in a kind of exploratory way. And that's what really drove the reporting. Whereas most of our reporting, you know, comes out of, uh, you know, especially in my case, being deeply, deeply, deeply immersed in Chicago, particularly the South Side, and, and kind of well-sourced in our environment. But the but with with FOIA, we cast a wider net. The diversity of uh, this year's Pulitzer winners kind of stood out for me, including the fact that a teenager has been recognized with a special citation. But a lot of people of color seem to have gotten awards this year as opposed to years past. Now, is that my imagination? I think it's true. I think that... You know, I mean, the Pulitzers were were delayed by the COVID conditions we've all been dealing with. Um, I think this was a year of kind of reflection for for everybody, including including the Pulitzer judges. And there's no question that the sort of historical moment, the zeitgeist, in terms of uh, whatever we're going to call this era, you know, the post George Floyd moment. Um, you know, was was really dramatically reflected in in the Pulitzers, and you know, I I don't follow these things closely, but my impression has always been that the Pulitzers are kind of the ultimate um, journalism establishment <laughs> award, right? 
And and I think this year was a departure from that. And whether they've broken the mold for the future or it was just in response to, you know, this particular moment in our common life, we'll we'll have to wait and see. But um, I had some, particularly around the podcast, I had some interaction with with judges. They had in the the run up to the announcement, they had some specific questions about how we'd gone about the podcast, and. I had a conversation with Steven Engelberg, who's the former New York Times editor, who's now the executive editor of ProPublica. And, you know, he was very positive about the reporting, and, and, but, but did reflect, this is a new mode of, of journalism, you know, yeah. a new way of, of approaching stories. So I think, like all of us, they're, they're trying to be responsive to and sort of grappling with, with changes in the, um, and how these stories are reported. And if you, if you add Shapiro Wells, you know, who is not a conventional journalist, the, the host and, and voice of um, the somebody podcast to the young woman who took the, the George Floyd video, there's also a, a, a sort of acknowledgement of, I don't really like the term citizen journalism, but um, you know, the journalism is a practice rather than a status. And I think that's really healthy. Let's back up. Why is it called the Invisible Institute? <laughs> so uh, it it really, I mean, it's turned out to be a, a very appropriate name in ways we can talk about, but it started as a joke. So, you know, way back, we're talking now 1999, 2000, I had for a number of years been immersed in high-rise public housing on South State Street, principally at Stateway Gardens, to some degree at Robert Taylor, the Robert Taylor Homes and Ida B. Wells. And I, you know, I was there, I had multiple roles. I was finishing a book on an unrelated topic, so I wasn't really reporting out of that environment. And, you know, when I finished my book, it's, it's about 2000, and the so-called plan for transformation is is getting rolling. Really, the the precipitous demolition of public high-rise public housing and the forced relocation of residents, you know, an extraordinary, extraordinary phenomena at the center of the city that was by no measure being adequately covered by the, by major media. And so we, I started to report um, from a vacant unit at Stateway Gardens about um, we, we created an online publication, The View from the Ground, and my wife, Patricia Evans, is a documentary photographer, and there was a young guy, young college student who sort of attached himself named David Eads, who, um, it's kind of a wonderful story, you know, worked for several years with me, he was a kind of tech genius and helped with the, the production side of The View from the Ground. He then went on to the Tribune, to NPR, to ProPublica, uh, the Chicago Reporter, and ultimately was part of the team at the Marshall Project that won the the Pulitzer with us. So um, anyway, we're hunkered down in, in a uh, vacant unit in a public housing high-rise. If you'd come to visit me there, you would have been ushered in very graciously, I should add, by, by guys who were dealing drugs outside our office. And when we launched the view from the ground with the first, you know, the first reporting, as a kind of, um, I don't know, uh, sort of gentle thumbing of my nose at academia, at think tanks, I said um, that the, the, the view from the ground was being published under the auspices of the Invisible Institute. And people, people just really liked the name. I feel like the name kind of just followed me around for years, um, kind of loosely describing a set of uh, collaborations and associations. And then after we won the the lawsuit, Calvin versus Chicago in 2014, it was a sort of pivotal moment for what had been a loose collaborative ethos, which is actually where I'm most comfortable. And the feeling that really to be worthy of this, you know, now sudden access, you know, the walls of official secrecy having fallen, we had sudden access to information nobody had ever had before that we really needed to kind of institutionalize, staff up, become a proper five, you know, proper nonprofit organization, at which point we actually became the Invisible Institute. Um, but it, it, it all started with a wisecrack. 
And how many other journalists make up the staff? So there's a core staff at the moment of eight. and But then, you know, I, nobody at any given moment, we, we refer to it as sort of the core team, you know, fully salaried staff. And, um, but on, you know, a number of different projects, we work with either partners, you know, as with the Marshall Project, or with um, contractors in the sense of, of people we, you know, we pay on a project basis. So, um, and there are, you know, a number of, of, of people. So, I, you know, I, I couldn't hazard an exact number at the moment, but it, you know, so we're a relatively small nucleus and then really um, far-flung uh, web of, of collaborators and, and partners, you know, some of whom are, are on the payroll and some of whom, you know, work with us on a, on an in-kind basis. Um, so, you know, from the start, part of my vision has been to build cap- capacity through collaboration. And it's, it's worked out pretty well. So we have, you know, it's now geez, close to 20 years We've worked very closely with the Mandel Legal Aid um, Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School, so that at any given time, you know, we have a clinical professor, a civil rights lawyer, and you know, as many as six, sometimes even more, law students working with us within the curriculum. So it's kind of like having a you know a small law firm attached to us. So a lot of our a lot of our work is is, is kind of that way. But the core, you know, the core is a, a, a relatively small team. Um, you know, each of whom have some measure of um, organizational responsibilities, but also everybody's a creative. Coming up, how dangerous is it for journalists? to piss off the cops. Chicago Media Talks is sponsored by Sun Fun U Mediterranean Voyages. When you need a break from all the news and from the windy city itself, join Sun Fun U for a week yachting through the Mediterranean, learning history of the region, and playing in the sea. To make trouble seem a world away, visit Sun Fun U and sign up for a voyage this summer. As the Invisible Institute's Jamie Calvin's more recent work has come into the spotlight, a lot of people may not have been aware of one of his most personal connections to crime in Chicago. In 1988, his wife was beaten and sexually assaulted while running along the lakefront. Jamie, how has that shaped your journalism, shaped your career? Wow, that's a, that's a, a great question and one that I may not have an adequate answer for. So I wrote... Uh, about two years after the assault, and um, my wife Patricia Evans, as I said, is a photographer, um, close close colleague. At the time, we had two children, um, four and eight, four and eight years old. Um, and the image I used for the um, condition we found ourselves in after she was she was brutalized was it was as if we were we were shipwrecked in the midst of everyday life and um particularly you know acute obviously for for her but also um you know two small children each in their own way trying to make sense of um something that had had sort of capsized the household and i ended up um, you know, was in close collaboration with my wife a couple of years after the assault, undertaking a book that was l- later published in 1999 titled Working with Available Light. Uh, um, the title both a gesture towards my wife's photography and an expression of what I think was, was really important in the, the whole undertaking, understanding that I couldn't fully grasp her experience. Um, so in a way, you know, it was a book in praise of partial knowledge, you know, of what can be known of, of other people's uh, condition in life. And it, it really was, you know, work on the book and the conversation, you know, the deep conversation with my wife that actually, you know, continues, had a profound effect on my work more generally 
in in a couple of ways. Um, but I'm I'm you know groping a little bit for for language because I, I hope someday to be wise enough and a good enough writer to actually take this on and fully give a fully adequate account. But I think the two things I can identify I touched on one of them. One is a kind of deference to other people's experience, not to assume you understand too quickly. And and I think there's a you know there's a, a kind of a occupational hazard in journalism of just assuming things too quickly. And so it's it's always been a premise of my work and reflected in, you know, close to a decade and a half I spent in, immersed in public housing. That in order to have the conversations that we desperately need to have, in order to, um, uh, you know, understand the the, um, the you know the issues and the stories that we're drawn to as as journalists, we we have to build the relationships to support those conversations. You know, so the kind of parachuting in with a notebook and assuming that you have some competence that can access somebody else's story, somebody else's lived experience, I think is a, a blindness and a hubris in journalism. So that, that you know, that's one thing. The second thing, um, which really has profoundly shaped just my how I conceptualize stories and try to find ways into them is is really what working you know much was made of working with available life at, at the time as you know a man writing about a woman's experience of of male violence of of the violence of men i understand that i understand that but actually what i was engaged in as a writer and what i was trying to do was to trace the ramifications in in in, in across time and through relationships of a single act of um, cruelty and and moral stupidity and and so that has been really central to my work how violence ramifies the long lastingness of violence over time how it shapes people's experience of the world you know how it actually shapes the world um, uh, you know that we that we move through, and and just how fundamentally conditions of violence and tolerance of violence, whether it's state violence or the threat of of, of personal violence, diminishes you know diminishes the possibilities of human flourishing. So there has been this kind of dialectic at the center of my work between reporting out of the most you know intimate space of my own life and my family life and thinking about um, you know conditions of violence in the neighborhoods and communities most directly affected by by state violence and by you know our collective ability to, to really tolerate intolerable conditions for our fellow citizens Jamie's reporting on Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke's murder of Laquan McDonald contributed to, well, many things, but including the firing of Superintendent Gary McCarthy, led to federal investigations of human rights abuses in the Chicago Police Department, shattered then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel's reputation. Jamie, as you've reported on stories the police won't like, how concerned have you been with your personal safety and, and the safety of people close to you? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to sound cavalier <laughs> about it, but I, um, so uh, there have been different phases of my reporting, and probably the time where I was most at risk was um, when I was reporting out of public housing. I did get threats, I did get death threats from the police at the time. And, um, you know, what would have happened had, had any of those threats been, been acted on? There's no way in which they would have come at me directly, but you know somebody that they'd arrested and had leverage on, um, you know, they, I, there could easily have been a scenario where officers say, "Look, we'll let you, we'll let you walk on this," uh, you know, as opposed to being incarcerated. But um, you know, you go mess up that that white guy. 
I find in doing, I, and again, I have a personally I have a fairly high tolerance for risk, so I, 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 I'm not talking prescriptively. I have just found it easier to do the work without um, being unduly preoccupied with those kinds of those kinds of threats and I'm still here. Um, I think, you know, I, I think it takes a different form now. You know, I was, I was working, I hope I was doing good work as a, as a reporter, but I was working in relative obscurity in those years. And, um, you know, the, the city and the police were pissed at me, but, um, you know, my name was not in on a marquee. Right. And, um, I think in you know in recent years where there's been more acknowledgement of the work where you know I have a more um, for better or worse a more prominent public role, it's hard to actually game out the um, any kind of rational calculus where it would make sense for um, for anybody to I mean physically harm me. Um, it's not clear what would be accomplished there. On the other hand, if it's just somebody who's being irrational and impulsive, there's actually not much you can do to protect yourself against that. What counsel do you have for others reporting critically on the cops? You know, people who are inspired by your work and, and, and want to take on the same kind of thing, but may not have you know your profile at this point. It's a hard question, I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend. I mean, I, 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 I am hesitant to. Um, urge people to do the reporting without regard to consequences because I think, you know, you can be, in, we've seen, you know, we've seen reporters targeted and injured in some of the um, the demonstrations, um, you know, over last summer particularly. So I, I, I don't want to minimize, you know, I don't want to minimize the harms. I mean, I've actually found that cops live in narrative they're incredible gossips. They live in stories. You know, that's sort of the medium, at least in my experience. It makes it really rich and interesting to to, to sort of cover the police. Um, some of my major sources, not least in the Laquan McDonald reporting, you know, have been in law enforcement. And there's a sort of grudging respect for your reporting if you get it right. So, you know, you know that operates... And my stance, I mean, I've actually had um, relations, I, I don't, with the current head of FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, but I've actually had relations with successive, you know, um, heads of, of the police union and with officers intensely, you know, critical of my work or critical of the, the um, uh, you know, Calvin decision, the Freedom of Information Act decision. I guess the one thing I would say prescriptively is I don't think it's healthy to, and I say this as you know a, a critic over many many years of of the police department. I don't think it's healthy to think of the police as being monolithic. I mean, I don't think that's good for our public discourse. I don't think it's good for thinking carefully and rigorously and inquiring effectively into the you know, deplorable conditions we find ourselves living in with respect to, to policing in the city at the moment. You know, I think the, the police are, as, as individuals, are kind of inside the same, they're inside the belly of the whale with the rest of us. And we need to find ways of, of approaching the, this immensely important and central story that sees the police as being as individual police officers as being kind of entangled in um, the mess that the police department has become over time as as the rest of us are as as um, as civilians I don't know if that's helpful I wouldn't but I personally I wouldn't over dramatize the danger I mean I actually think there is a tendency to over dramatize how dangerous police work is and I think you know outside of certain circumstances that are extraordinarily dangerous, I think, you know, we can get a little uh, overwrought about how dangerous journalism is. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's a job and you, this is part of the job. I should, I should add though, 
that where I have, you know, been most um, kind of retaliated against has actually not been by individual police officers, but it's been by the city. Um, when I was reporting out of public housing, there's a series you can find on the the Invisible Institute website called Kicking the Pigeon. It's a series of 17 articles about a, a rogue police crew that was operating at Robert Taylor and Stateway Gardens. When I was in the course of reporting that, the city law office subpoenaed all of my notes with it having anything to do with drug dealing, police abuse. It was an incredibly wide subpoena um, in, uh, in, in public housing at that time. And they pursued that um, subpoena, seeking contempt sanctions against me for a full 18 months. And I think there's no sense in which they actually wanted my notes. It was much more um, retaliation against a, a, a reporter for reporting that they they were upset about. Um, so that you know, th- I think that's a more serious um, and a more likely threat against journalists. I had a similar experience in the run-up to the Laquan McDonald trial. The um, defense team subpoenaed me to testify in an effort to get me to reveal my my sources and principally the the source within law enforcement who had had told told me about the incident and about the existence of the videotape in the first place and you know set, set me on the road in reporting that story and again you know it was a couple of months of being back and forth and in court threatened with contempt and all sorts of wild things being said in court, you know, alleging that I had orchestrated the witness testimony and, um, you know, had deliberately tried to, um, you know, bring about the, the prosecution of Jason Van Dyke. So I think, I think those things, which lots of journalists have, have experienced, the, the sort of institutional retaliation is probably more of a concern than the um, you know personal acts of violence by by individuals, or the or the threat of the same, and and there I think we have a real problem in journalism. I think we have you know I've been lucky. Um, the Laquan McDonald's a high profile case in the in the uh, the earlier instance. I uh, was ultimately represented pro bono by by Tom Sullivan, a former U.S. attorney. Um, and you know had had great legal representation, so I think that's a question for the profession. I mean, I think about when I was in the Laquan McDonald situation, I had you know great lawyers step up to represent me pro bono. The um, Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press provided support. Uh, you know, there was a national petition of journalists. Uh, you know, so I had I had tremendous support. I could have been a young, unknown reporter, maybe downstate, uh, reporting on the school board or, or something else, found myself in a similar situation where I was, you know, being on completely uh, fictional grounds, being pulled into a, um, a lawsuit. That could be a terrifying experience. I, and I'm writing for a publication that is on life support and couldn't withstand even a you know a frivolous lawsuit. Um, so I think I would worry more about that than the the personal threat. I think it's critically important that there be legal re- legal resources available to local journalists doing their jobs. And just think of all of the, you know, local and regional newspapers and other publications that are one frivolous lawsuit away from from um, bankruptcy. So anyway, I, I, I digress some, but I think that that is a much more fundamental question for journalism. My colleague, an award-winning reporter in her own right, and for purposes of this show, the producer of this episode, Jennifer O'Neill, has raised her hand, and she has a question, and I hope others will too. Jennifer. When it comes to greater reform of the Chicago Police Department, and since listening to your your last comments, um, perhaps even the city as a whole itself, what would you like to see happen next? I mean, in your opinion, what are what are some crucial next steps? 
Oh, I, I appreciate the question, and it allows me to correct something that Charlie said in the in the setup about you know my reporting transforming the Chicago Police Department. I wish that were true. Well, it <laughs> transformed uh, it a little bit, didn't it? Just a teeny. Well, no, it, it 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 caused a lot of turbulence for sure. I, I call you know, that transformation. But the point is that it it keeps the the actual institution keeps producing the same you know terrible outcomes, and um, you know so I I really appreciate Jennifer's question, and you know it is broad. I'll I'll try to narrow it in a couple of, just to give you a sense of a couple of things that I'm concerned about and trying to find words to um, create some perspective on. One is, I think, you know, as a city, and I mean that, you know, as all of us together, it's really time for a gut check as far as where we are in terms of reform, if that's the right word. You know, Chicago had its George Floyd moment six years ago with the Laquan McDonald revelations, the cratering, you know, as Charlie said, of the the Emanuel administration. And, you know, from that moment on, it has been sort of axiomatic in Chicago politics that police reform and slash public safety is the highest priority in the city. You know, we've had endless representations by police officers. We have a mayor who was swept into office on a a reform agenda, you know, that this was just the most, the most urgent thing. And look where we are, you know, look where we are. There are certain things that have been, have been achieved. I sometimes use the image of, you know, swimming across a big body of water and we're kind of in the middle and we can't see either shore. So it's hard to say, you know, exactly where we are, but the critical, the critical metric is people keep dying unnecessarily. Lives continue to be diminished unnecessarily. People are denied freedom. All these things are avoidable. And if if we're looking for you know, just a more granular sort of embodiment of that. You know, the two most recent high-profile killings in Chicago by police officers, both of which I reported, uh, Adam Toledo, the 13-year-old boy, and uh, Anthony Alvarez, 22-year-old young man, both were shot at the end of um, frantic police chases. That initiated a... um, uh, you know, public um, uh, commotion driven in part by by the mayor about the urgent necessity of changing the foot pursuit policy of the police department. Well, you know, that the the reckless nature of the foot pursuit policy had been diagnosed definitively in 2017 in the Department of Justice report on the Chicago Police Department um, had been recognized earlier, you know, as a problem, and nothing had been done to address it until there were the, the back-to-back killings of these of these two young men at the ends of chases. That's just one of many, many examples of things that are fixable and haven't been fixed. And I think we should be ashamed. You know, what we are talking about, you know, we're talking about today, tomorrow, are avoidable deaths if we were to do the things that, um, you know, we know how to do. We don't have to have some new insight or um, analysis of policing or technological innovation. And so, you know, I'm feeling very strongly the, the failure of our um, political leadership, but also, you know, in some sense of all of us, to um, to push that to push that agenda, and I think this relates to a second broader point. This and this is where I think we may be at the threshold of of a more productive public discourse about these things. You know, we've had, and I think it's it's really helpful, and it's created imaginative space that. Um, is important. You know, we've had now 
years of discussion of um, abolition of the police, of a radical reimagining of law enforcement, the slogan "Defund the police," you know, the kind of a kind of utopic project of really thinking big about how we could reorder our relationships with one another and create conditions in which um, everybody in the city has an equal opportunity to flourish. Um, I understand that dynamic. I feel it. I'm close to it. I've seen again and again people, and we saw massively during the George Floyd summer, people who come into contact with this issue maybe for the first time or with a greater clarity than ever before, and they see immense harms that are baked into the society that go back to slavery, that deform our our common civic life. And when you're awash with perception of that nature, it's completely understandable that people want remedies that are transformative, remedies that are commensurate with the harm. And you know, I wish it were the case that there were those transformative remedies, but um, you know, my experience has has brought me to the conclusion that they're just not on the menu. They're not on the menu. But what is on the menu are any number of concrete interventions, changes in policy, changes in practice, changes in culture different points at which it's possible to intervene. And my hope is that we will begin to see a, a you know, a, a movement, a kind of civil society energy that brings as much moral passion to those more granular interventions, none of them transformative in themselves, but hugely important in the aggregate. I mean, I think that's how systems and cultures change. And I often think in this context of, of Dr. King, Andy Young, and others, and, you know, what they were masterful at was generating a narrative in which very concrete um, reforms had profound and inspiring meaning. So if you think back to Selma, you know, we think of Selma, just that one word evokes this extraordinary historical um, uh, drama and embodiment of you know, profound themes of racial justice. But Selma was about the Voting Rights Act. It was about very great, it was about the poll tax. It was about literacy tests as bars to, to the franchise. And um, we haven't had that kind of discourse around um, transforming law enforcement. We, ha we don't have that narrative that helps us understand how critically important something, you know, is seemingly uh, minor or, um, you know, easily overlooked as, just to use the example, we've been talking about foot pursuit policy. I think, you know, that's what we need. And I think journalism has a contribution to make there. And I'm I'm not sure that we've I'm I'm not sure that we've made it. So a lot of people perceive police reform, especially under the consent decree, the sort of federal blueprint that uh, for overseeing the process, as a kind of bureaucratic process, as a sort of um, checklist of things. And I think it's anything but that. It, it's you know this is a human rights struggle. And the essence of human rights work is to do what we can today to prevent harms that will otherwise occur tomorrow. So I think we've got some work to do. Jamie recently announced she's stepping down from the executive director's role at the Invisible Institute. Jamie, what's next? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the unexpected adventures of my life has been I really never you know, expected to to build an organization, and least of all one that, in a sense, grew out of my work and then has a life of its own. And you know, with a wonderful group of of young you know co-creators at this point. Um, but one of the things that has happened is over time, as as the organization's gained traction, extended its reach, um, taken on more projects. My role as executive director has involved, you know, just more and more and more administrative and managerial 
work and it has sort of taken me out of the the as much a, a, the creative work as I would like to be involved in. So basically I'm I'm stepping down as executive director but only in order to redouble my my creative contributions, I hope. And I have, you know, a number of, of uh, reporting projects I'm I'm working on and, you know, look forward to just, you know, completely diving into. And it, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I, I know um, there are um, reporters on this, uh, you know, on this call, on this uh, conversation and it's, you know, I can I can turn out an op-ed piece. I can write a, a an article um, about a police shooting. You know, report it and write it um, while doing the the administrative stuff on a day-to-day basis. What I what I can't seem to find the time for is the actual sort of immersion and thinking that go into figuring out a bigger project. And that's what I I'm full of appetite for. And, um, you know, I, I hope that um, in the course of the summer we'll be announcing a successor um, to, to, for my position in the executive director role, but um, I'm not going anywhere. Now that you are stepping down from your administrative role, just curious what you would like to see the Invisible Institute accomplish moving forward. Oh, thank you for, you know, thank you for asking that. You know, I... I I think sometimes we're perceived as um, being a, a well, we are. You know, we are a production company now. You know, we've we've got a the podcast that was a finalist for um, the uh, the Pulitzer. We did a, a documentary for Showtime on 16 Shots that that won an Emmy. Um, we did the, the reporting that won the Pulitzer. We, um, you know, have, have done a range. We've got the database. We've done a, um, really fascinating project called Six Durations of a Split Second that, uh, was a re, um, creation of a police shooting that occurred in 2018 that actually was an art exhibition as part of the Chicago Architecture Biennial. So, you know, it can look like we're this, kind of all over the map sort of production company working in different media. The way I understand the Invisible Institute is we are a human rights slash journalism organization that um, investigates state violence and impunity. And it's really the investigations at the heart of our work, you know, which also includes the, the you know, public document requests, you know, contesting official secrecy, that really is the, is the driver. And then, um, you know, as we advance an investigation, we have this kind of, it's almost like a design studio or a narrative studio in which the question becomes, how do we best tell this story with available tools? And sometimes, I mean, I, I joke with my much younger staff that I'm essentially a 19th century novelist who wandered into this this sort of brave new world, you know. And and my um, mode of reporting is is you know almost invariably going to be sort of novella length, non uh, long form uh, narrative reporting. But we, you know, we did the podcast and. Early on, it occurred to me that the elements were there for that. Maybe that was the best way to tell this story. Um, you know, I've, I've got another um, uh, TV documentary project that that I'm working on. So the primary thing is the investigation. The primary metric is actually having an impact, I, I always say, on policy and practice, but what I really mean is ultimately an impact on the lived experience of our fellow citizens and neighbors in communities most affected. You know, the, the awards don't mean anything if, if the conditions don't, don't change or if we don't contribute in some small way to that. But then there's this other kind of fascinating dimension that we're trying to better understand of 
how you how you tell the story. So with every with every project, it's it's a new question: how best to tell this story. And I, w- I would add one other thing, Jennifer, which is that at the beginning of my career, you know, as a journalist, my father was a First Amendment scholar. I sort of came up with this very um, strong sense of vocation under the First Amendment. I sort of understood the job as rigorously and uh, diligently reporting, bringing the facts and information back to you know my fellow citizens, and trusting that with solid information, people will make better rather than worse choices, that, um, that better policies will emerge. Absolutely nothing in my career has supported that premise. I have to say that, um, you know, in truth, I think the problem of our time, um, you know, and I'm putting aside sort of fake news, uh, the, the, you know, the alternative reality kind of, kind of phenomena is that people can be by any measure well informed you know, read the right books, maybe even write some of them, have the New York Times and other media sources, you know, on their doorstep, literally or figuratively every, every morning, be, be dutiful about, about, you know, being well-informed, and at the same time, be profoundly, willfully ignorant of the conditions of life within walking distance of where they put their heads on the pillow. That, to me, is extraordinary. So how we manage to know things and not know them at the same time, how we live with conditions that, um, you know, cry out to, to, to be addressed, how we tolerate intolerable things, you know, how we fail to see things that are in plain sight, that to me is the, the core journal, journalistic problematic. So when we're thinking about how best to tell a story, it's not simply, you know, how to convey information. God knows we're all sort of drowning in tsunamis coming at us all the time of, of information. You know, the question is how to tell a story with that information in a way that breaks through into people's moral imaginations so that it matters. So I hope that, you know, as as I become um, not the the kind of driving force, but a member of of the team at the Invisible Institute, that 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 way of approaching the work um, will continue. And I I have some confidence based on you know the extraordinary group of 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 colleagues who've been attracted to the work that 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 will happen. Um, but yeah, that would be my, I think we have a, we have a direction, we have a trajectory, we have even something that almost warrants being called a methodology. So, um, you know, I hope we continue to roll in that direction. I'd like to welcome another colleague, Jesse Patend, an award-winning producer for Rivet. Jesse, what's your question? When it comes to somebody, that particular podcast sort of helped me see, call it a blind spot in some of my own work in that you described the the host of the show, Shapiro Wells, as a partner. And that's very different from a lot of the long form narrative investigative podcasts that have come before where um, a reporter is typically at least assisting in telling a story. Um, can you talk a little bit about that decision and how you came to it and perhaps why we don't see it more often? Sure. Well, I, I hope we will see it more often. I hope that'll be one of the impacts of, of somebody. So the, the genesis of the project is that, um, you know, by virtue of my uh, role in the Laquan McDonald case, we have, an, and it was particularly true when Shapiro first reached out to us, we have a, a, a pretty robust tip line. You know, so... I, you know, regularly get from family members, from people in prison, dear Mr. Calvin, um, letters, um, um, and it, it, it's quite heartbreaking because in so many instances, you can't help, you know, you, you there's no way to sort of enter the story. 
Um, we try to respond to everybody who reaches out. There's a young reporter who works with us who um, we got a Dear Mr. Calvin letter from a woman named Shapiro Wells. Um, my colleague spoke to her a couple of times on the phone and then said to me, Jamie, you know, you really should meet this person. We spent about 45 minutes um, talking face-to-face and she brought a stack of documents. Um, she had, as you know from listening to the podcast, Jesse, from virtually the the moment she learned of her son's death, she started to investigate it herself, um, learned how to make FOIA requests, um, used her iPhone to record interactions with the police. Um, but she was, you know, close to despair when she reached out to us and has told me since that if, if we hadn't responded, she was going to just, um, you know, stop actively investigating and, and live with her, live with her grief and unanswered questions. And, you know, after her, our conversation, our presentation, I, my response was to say, Ms. Wells, you know, um, we will help in any way we can with the investigation on one condition that you're the lead investigator, that you continue to be, you know, a central part of the investigative team, which was the case. So, you know, it was kind of in the DNA of the project, um, that she was a, a partner from the start. And, you know, I never thought of her as, as a source. And, and then, you know, about a week or 10 days later, it occurred to me, I don't know where this is going. I, um, but, um, you know, it's compelling and we should probably capture radio quality sound while we're, while we're working on the investigation. And, and so we did, but it was, you know, but everything was again driven and this was sort of a more granular version of my answer to to Jennifer about uh, about how I see the future everything was driven by the investigation that you know we were really trying to learn what we could about the circumstances of Courtney Copeland's Courtney Copeland's death and and then deep deep in the investigation we realized we really did have the makings of a podcast and you know at that point but it really flowed from the, the very inception of the of the project as investigation, it seemed like we we should try and initially it was more t- it was tentative, try to see if there was a way to um, have Shapiro be be the host and the voice, and um, you said something that implied this you know that also entailed um, really bringing our skill set as journalists to um, to su- su- support that process. You know, so um, Shapiro, we worked really, really closely with uh, my colleague, Allison Flowers, who was the, you know, lead creative on it, and with two wonderful radio producers, Bill Healy and, um, and Sarah Geis. So, you know, they became a, they became a team working together um, I don't know if that's responsive to your question, but it, it really, you know, I mean, it, it relates also to the diversity of our staff. So we have, by any measure, a really diverse staff, um, age, gender, um, um, race. And I have never once thought to myself, ooh, you know, we need a, a woman in that chair or um, a, a black person, you know, in this position the focus has been on how do we do the work? How do we do the kind of reporting that we're committed to doing? And with that approach, it becomes apparent who, you know, who is best equipped to do the work. And, um, you know, and, and so we, we've sort of opened up our thinking about, about, you know, how to do the reporting. We have another podcast in progress um, that has a similar structure to, to the um, the Somebody podcast, where the, you know where the principal voice is is not a conventional journalist, but is somebody who has you know an extraordinarily deep and interesting relationship to the story. I think it's just you know it's a matter of kind of, I mean you you spoke of abolition before, and I think my even though I would argue against um, you know a sweeping 
abolitionist vision. I'm really grateful for the imaginative space that that advocacy has created to consider alternatives. And I think, we, you know, what we're trying to do is, is sort of something similar in um, the in journalism, the journalistic practice, there's a Rebecca Solnit, the essayist, has a formulation somewhere. I'm not sure I'm going to I'm going to get it exactly right, but it's something to the effect that that journalists need to remember that it's always somebody else's story, and no matter how well you tell it, no matter how much attention you may bring to it, it remains somebody else's story. So that's I don't think we have a you know, a template or a fixed answer, but that's the core value that we want to um, honor at the center of our work at the Invisible Institute. Closing thoughts, Charlie? You know, especially as legacy media, like most recently, and in the headlines, the Chicago Tribune suffer this decline by a thousand cuts. Um, Words fail me as I try to express how much comfort I take in the work of the small but growing network of mostly digital journalism startups and the growth and the growing impact of the Invisible Institute, Jamie, is a great example. It gives me hope for the future of, of journalism. Your closing thoughts, Sheila? Well, I think the Chicago Sun-Times has been showing of, that a really small newsroom can still do journalism that makes an impact. So I'm wondering what the public's going to notice about a smaller Chicago Tribune newsroom. Next week, we'll have a chance to ask former columnist Eric Zorn on Clubhouse. Jamie, closing thoughts. In, in terms of the future of journalism in Chicago, I, I think there's always a bit of a danger that, and I, I say this with sympathy to sympathy for many friends at the Tribune who have have left in recent years, who are about to leave, but I, I think there's a danger in imagining because of the economic stresses in journalism right now that there was this wonderful golden age in um, uh, legacy legacy media you know I've spent my career over now I, I won't count that <laughs> A long, a long time, over a long time, I have devoted myself to the stories that some of them now celebrated, but to the stories that the Tribune and the Sun Times didn't cover, left on the table, to the neighborhoods and the conditions and the communities that were underreported or or badly reported. So. You know, as, as much as as uh, you know, it's it's important to to recognize the the genuine economic um, perplexities of of how journalism works going forward. I, I think you know we should also take heart from the fact that I don't know quite how we all managed to do it. But I suspect there's never been a time when more quality journalism has been produced, and um, there's or and a wider variety of of voices within journalism. I I don't see that as collapse. I see that as as progress, and um, you know, and and I, I think one one final observation, which is that if anything. We suffer from too much news, you know, just too much noise and information, you know, coming at us. So I think some of the new forms that are evolving um, and and the new collaborations that are beginning to, to take hold may actually um, ultimately produce a healthier, you know, a healthier diet for consumers of the news. Anyway, I, I see no reason for despair, although I have deep sympathy for those who who wagered their lives and their careers on the stability of legacy media. Our guest on this edition of Chicago Media Talks, recorded live on Clubhouse June 21st, 2021, has been Invisible Institute founder Jamie Calvin. His book is Working with Available Light, A Family's World After Violence. You can reach him at info at InvisibleInstitute.com. The Institute's podcast is Somebody, 
You can find Sheila Solomon at Sheila at Rivet360.com. And I'm Charlie Meyerson. Join me for a roundup of the news around 10 weekday mornings at ChicagoPublicSquare.com. And be here again Mondays at 1 o'clock Central for more Chicago Media Talks. For Sheila Solomon, producers Jennifer O'Neill and Mike Hoffman, and everyone at Rivet360, thanks for listening. Chicago Media Talks is sponsored by Sun Fun You Mediterranean Voyages. When you need a break from all the news and from the windy city itself, join Sun Fun You for a week yachting through the Mediterranean, learning history of the region, and playing in the sea. To make trouble seem a world away, visit Sun Fun You and sign up for a voyage this summer. Rivet360 makes podcasting easy. Want help with your podcast? Visit rivet360.com.